Hi, everybody, and welcome to another bonus episode of Producing the Beatles. I'm your host, Jason Krupa, and this time out, we take a look at the making of one of Paul's key solo songs from the 70s, Live and Let Die, written for the James Bond film of the same name, released in 1973. Unlike John, George, and Ringo, who typically worked with outside producers, Paul produced his own recordings in the 70s. Although he attempted to work with producers Jim Garcio and Glenn Johns at different times in this period, those situations ended up breaking down. The one successful exception to Paul's self-production is Live and Let Die, which precipitated a reunion with Beatles producer George Martin. But as we'll see, it wasn't the first time Paul had worked with George Martin since the Beatles' breakup, and the recording itself turned out to be anything but typical. Martin also spun a story around this production that portrayed him as a skilled diplomat. And while the story isn't exactly untrue, it leaves out a lot of context. To get that context, as well as all the other details involved in writing and recording this song, I spoke with Alan Cozen, co-author of The McCartney Legacy, Volume 1, an exhaustive and fascinating examination of Paul's work in the early 70s. With Alan's help, we'll learn who else contributed to the song's composition, the problems they faced in conquering this ambitious recording, and we'll walk through George Martin's Grammy-winning arrangement. All that and an exploding piano as we look at the making of Live and Let Die on this episode of Producing the Beatles. Although Paul began working on Live and Let Die in 1972, the story of a Bond film getting a McCartney theme song really began sometime earlier. Here's Alan Cozen. Ron Cass, who had worked for Apple, was now working for the company that was making James Bond films, Eon Productions. He went to Paul and said at one point, would you like to do a film song for a Bond film? And they were working on Diamonds Are Forever. Paul said, yeah, sure, you know, I'd love to. And then there got to be uh, some behind the scenes kerfuffle that went on, nothing to do with Paul really, other than that Paul had been asked sort of prematurely on that one. So that kind of went away. <laughs> and about a year later, when they were gonna do Live and Let Die, uh, Ron Cass came to him again and said, you know, this time it's, this time it's real if you wanna do it. Alan and his co-author, Adrian Sinclair, found the contract between the film's production company, Eon Productions, and Paul's company, MPL. That document, which here is called a memo of agreement, laid out the terms of the project. And a copy of that is, I think, in the University of Wisconsin archives. I think they have a, a film archives, and a copy of that got into there. So we were able to get our hands on that that way. So in the memo of understanding, they talk a bit about the fees as well. And Paul and Wings are going to be paid, really Paul, $15,000 to write and record the song. Based on the fact that John Barry, who had done the Bond film scores until this point, was paid $25,000 for Diamonds Are Forever. 
that left 10,000 for the orchestral score for the rest of the film. So that was George Martin's fee. So in 2023 money, that's about 100,000 for Paul and 67,000 for George Martin. And Martin's fee covers writing and recording the entire film score, not just the arrangement for the song. Also note that this contract was signed in March 1972, and Martin hadn't yet been hired to score the film. Now, Paul, in like 1965, had done a fan magazine interview where they asked him about James Bond, and he said he was a big James Bond fan, and his favorite one was Live and Let Die. So he was familiar with it already, but he read the book again to see what kind of ideas he could get, and he came upon this segment in the book that is Captain Dexter talking to James Bond. And Dexter says, There's no one to help you up there, and don't go stirring up a lot of trouble for us. This case isn't ripe yet. Until it is, our policy with Mr. Big is live and let live. Bond looked quizzically at Captain Dexter. In my job, he said, when I come up against a man like this one, I have another motto. It's live and let die. So that gave Paul, you know, immediately, I mean, apart from putting him right where the title of the book comes from, it gave him this opposition of live and let live and live and let die. So that was the, the idea he started with. And then, you know, he was at this point was really keen on trying to write songs with Linda. I mean, that wasn't just a royalty grab, which is what ATV felt at the time he came up with it for another day. And the thing is that she really was trying to write music and she really was coming up with some ideas. It's very hard to parse what is and what isn't. But Paul found in one of her notebooks a line that she had, when you were young and your heart was an open home, you used to say, live and don't moan. It's in her handwriting. It could have been something she took down that, you know, when Paul was songwriting, she might have been taking notes. But... It's in her handwriting, we can assume with some degree of certainty that it was hers. And so Paul changed live and don't moan to, you know, live and let live, live and let die. And so, you know, Linda has definitely a share of this to some degree. We don't know what else she came up with. One feature of live and let die that I think we all recognize is what a dynamic structure it has. And this was part of the song, even in the writing stage. The shift from piano ballad into a rock groove was Paul's idea. But then it switches to a reggae beat in the bridge section. Right, well, so that was Denny Sywell, the drummer for Wings. He lived nearby and hadn't really settled his own living conditions yet. And so he'd spend a lot of time at Paul's house, hanging out, visiting, you know, whatever. And, and Paul played him what he had. And Denny came up with this idea that, you know, it was actually a brilliant touch of catering to the boss's own interests as well, because Linda was reggae mad, you know, from about 1970 on. When she got into reggae, it was like everything was going to be reggae. Seaside Woman, her song was reggae. And so Denny is listening to the song and he says, you know, for the bridge section, it, it actually would be interesting if you switched into a reggae beat for that. And that made everybody happy. And it also worked pretty brilliantly, you know, going from a, a song that is like miles away from reggae as it begins into, you know, suddenly switching into a reggae beat for the middle section. So that was his input. 
And here is where George Martin comes in. Okay, he had worked with George Martin in a very limited way until now. He had George Martin do some orchestrations for Ram. And even then, that was sort of through the mail. Paul was working in New York recording Ram, and what he did is he sent George Martin the tracks that he'd recorded, and George Martin sent scores back to New York. But that was the last he had worked with George Martin for a while. But with Live and Let Die, he kind of knew that George Martin was his guy. He had seen some of George Martin's film work, not, you know, not least in Yellow Submarine. So he went to George Martin with the idea of, I want this to be orchestral, but I also want it to be balletic in a way. He left these long scenes for some spectacular orchestra stuff that would be sort of vivid and picturesque. And it's just very dramatic. And George Martin usually could come up with exactly what Paul wanted. A recording date was set for October 19, 1972, at Air Studios. Martin and his business partners had opened the studios two years before, in October 1970, with 16-track recording facilities, which were still state-of-the-art in the UK in 1972. Incidentally, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, which was mixed at Air and released in early 1973, was also a 16-track recording. Now, the normal procedure for a production like this would be to record the basic track with wings first, then overdub the orchestra. But Paul and George Martin decided to try something different. Well, it all started with Paul ringing me up and saying, look, I've got a song for a film. Would you produce it for me and arrange it for me? I said, sure. I spent some time with him up in his house in Cavendish Avenue, um, going through the thing, and... From my point of view, it was a, a record that we were making. So I didn't spare any expense, and I booked a, a large orchestra, and I said, this is the way we'll do it. We'll do it with wings, and we'll work, work on the session uh, with just the group. And then in the evening, I'll bring in the orchestra, and I'll still keep wings there, and we'll try and do it live all together, um, to try and get a live feeling to it. As Martin just said, in the afternoon, before the orchestral recording, he had wings do a number of band-only takes. They chose take 10 as the keeper. The orchestral session began at 7 o'clock that evening with a 38-piece orchestra, but Martin and engineer Bill Price very quickly discovered a problem. It turns out that the strings were somehow covering his voice. There was some interference, as you know, can happen. And so the strings had to be moved to the studio next door. Martin, however, must have suspected he would need that extra studio. At this point in 1972, he was in the middle of producing an album by singer-songwriter duo Brian Parrish and Paul Gervitz. And Parrish remembered George giving him a heads up the day before. George said, I've got to just work on this thing with Paul tomorrow. 
And we thought, fine, well, you know, um, we'll just stay here and, uh, you know, because there's three studios there. One was a small studio for, like, overdubs and mixing only. And there were two main studios, Studio One and Studio Two, where the big, I think Studio One was the big one, where right. you got a whole orchestra in. Yeah. I can't remember which one we were in, but George just said, well, I'm going to have to use both studios. And we'd never heard of anything. I said, of course, you know, we hung around and we just, uh, but he wasn't working with us that day because he was completely involved in this thing with Paul. And he lashed the two studios together somehow or another. When Martin opened Air Studios, he realized there was a market for recording film scores that he wanted to capitalize on. And he knew that he might need to link the separate studio spaces. So he moved the strings, which was about half the orchestra, into the next studio, Studio Two, which had a three-foot wall between the two studios. So, you know, they were going to have to hear it through headphones. You weren't going to hear it through the wall. In pretty much the same way as they got Ken Townsend to invent things like ADT in Abbey Road, Martin had his guys put together certain things for air that he needed. And one of them was a thing called the synchronized start system that was developed by Dave Harris, who was another EMI refugee. And it worked by using an audio tone to synchronize the sort of link between the two studios, what was going on. That was also sort of part of that film system that, that George Martin had you know, hooked up in that studio. So that turned out to be a lucky thing. And Bill Price was sort of overseeing this. Bill Price and the engineer to record the strings was Steve Nye. I guess George Martin must have been conducting. So they, they got the two running in tandem and it worked. Okay, enough technical talk. Let's walk through Martin's score, which enters after the first verse. Say live and let die. And from here, it goes into the instrumental section before the bridge. For that section, at least one writer has suggested that Martin may have taken a bit of inspiration for the arrangement from this. That's a passage from Belshazzar's Feast, a 1931 composition by William Walton. A recording of Belshazzar's Feast was done earlier in 1972 with Andre Previn conducting the London Symphony Orchestra and released by George Martin's old employer, EMI. Previn also conducted a performance of this piece with the LSO at the Royal Albert Hall in September 1972, just a month before the recording session for Live and Let Die. When I mentioned this to Alan, he agreed the similarities were notable, but that this type of orchestration wasn't entirely uncommon in mid-20th century writing. And there's no hard evidence that Martin based his arrangement on this passage. So, while it's plausible that he had heard this recording, or even that he attended the Albert Hall performance, it's just as likely that Martin was drawing on a long tradition of orchestration in putting his own spin on these ideas, while also responding to the rhythm Paul already had in place. After this, the orchestra lays out until after the bridge, which is followed by a reprise of the explosive instrumental section.
Live and Let Die has no second verse, just a repeat of part of the first verse, but Martin wrote a more lyrical string part for this section, which distracts from the repetition because the arrangement here has such a different feel. and then back to the full orchestra. All the preparation had paid off. Once engineer Bill Price had managed the technical issues, Wings recorded just three takes with the orchestra, after which Price determined that they'd captured everything they needed to cover any problems. Wings did a few overdubs, including backing vocals and double-tracking Paul's lead vocal. When you were young and your heart was an open book you used to say, live and let live. You know you did, you know you did, you know you did. In spite of his apparent desire to capture the master live in one take, Paul returned to the studio the next day and asked the engineer to edit together the best parts of different takes. Where they got takes that if we listened to them, we would probably be completely happy. But Paul isn't quite that way. Paul is really a perfectionist. And so the next day, he went to Bill Price and said, um, you know, I'd really like bits of this take, bits of this take, bits of this take, and identifying what he liked. You know, I like the vocal in this one. I like uh, Henry McCulloch's guitar in this one. I like the, the way wings sounds in general in this one. I like the strings in that one. And that left Bill Price with a huge editing job. And he used the takes they did with the orchestra and bits of the take they did just as wings and sort of Frankenstein this all together. And if you think about it, we're talking about free digital. So you can't just copy and paste a bit of a track. You think about it now with today's you know, state of mind about recording, and it doesn't seem that difficult. But when you think about what they were up against using analog tape on the 16 track, which probably didn't have too many spare tracks left over either. It was quite a feat. I wanted to see if I could figure out what pieces of Take 10 Price might have used. So I lined it up with the final mix, and I found that the bridge syncs up perfectly. Take 10 is on the left here, and the final mix is on the right. You'll hear them fall into alignment right at the start of the bridge, and then fall out of alignment at the end. Once the recording and the editing were complete, Paul sent a copy to the film's producers. And this is where George Martin's story comes in. 
The composer who had written every Bond score to this point was John Barry, an old associate of Martin's from EMI. Barry and the producer of the Bond films, Harry Saltzman, had recently had a falling out, and Martin knew this, so his arrangement for Paul's song also effectively served as an audition tape for his scoring abilities. So Harry received this uh, record and was fairly impressed with it. And then the next thing was I was asked to fly out to Jamaica to meet Saltzman to discuss the score of the film. So they paid for my fare out there first class, so I thought, well, fair enough. I, a couple of days in Jamaica won't do me any harm. Went out to see Harry, and he was very, very kind and very, very genial. And didn't even say, would you like to do the score of the picture? He assumed I was doing it, you know, before I even got there. And he said, I want to talk about the score. This is the way I see it. And he started going, going into his idea. And then suddenly out of the blue, he said, um, fine, a fine arrangement you did on that uh, McCartney demo. So I said, well, thank you very much. Uh, he said, uh, now, let's see, uh, who are we going to get to do it in the picture? So I said, uh, I don't quite understand. We've got McCartney. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, I like having a girl singing the song in the picture. Oh, do you? Uh, well, how, what do you think of Thelma Houston? I said, well, I think she's awfully good. But um, I'm not sure. Uh, well, well, how about, um, he mentioned somebody else, you know. And then I had very gently to point out to him that he had got Paul McCartney, who was one of the best sellers in the world, and if he didn't like Paul McCartney singing it, it was quite likely he wouldn't get the song. And I'd, I had to be awfully delicate with this because uh, egos were likely to be bruised, you know. And he came round to it eventually, but it was a dicey moment. What Martin left out of his story was that he had misunderstood Saltzman's question. Here's Alan again. Now, what Saltzman meant was... In addition to the title credits at the beginning where Live and Let Die in the Wings version was going to be heard, and contractually that was the case, there was a memo of understanding, it clarifies that there was going to be a scene within the film. It was called the Filet of Soul scene. It was in a disco. And what they wanted was to have a soul singer, or originally a group, sing Live and Let Die a second time in the film. According to the original memo of understanding, it was going to be the fifth dimension. And Paul had agreed to produce the fifth dimension's recording. So Paul was totally aware that there was going to be another recording. George Martin might not have been aware. You know, he wasn't necessarily privy to the contracts between MPL and Eon Productions. So when he heard this question, you know, who are we going to get to sing it? He didn't have the context. He didn't know that Saltzman meant for the middle of the film. And it made sense for Saltzman to ask George Martin because he produced Shirley Bassey, who has certain, you know, Bond cred, and he produced other female singers. And it just seemed like George Martin might be the right guy to ask. And also, if they're thinking George Martin's score for this single was pretty good. Maybe he can do the whole show. Having George Martin also come up with the singer for the middle part was going to keep it all in-house in one package. Ultimately, the fifth dimension dropped out and were replaced by female soul singer B.J. Arno, who performed her version of the song within the film. And Paul didn't produce this recording either. George Martin did. Now, we don't know what Saltzman said, because the story ends at that point, but Saltzman must have said, no, no, what we mean is we need someone for the middle. George Martin never tells that part of the story. And Paul, when he picked up the story from George Martin, never quite tells that story either. And what I think is the case here is that 
you know, it's not so much that they're lying about it, is that they both recognize that this is actually a pretty spectacular story. Producer goes with the recording by Paul McCartney and Wings. The film producer says, yeah, who are we going to get to sing it? George Martin says, well, it, it, it's got to be Paul McCartney and saves the day. And neither one of them would have expected that anybody would ever see the original contract or memo of understanding. So nobody was going to contradict that story. And then, you know, along come us reading documents. And sorry to do it, but our job is to write about the reality. <laughs> and the reality was that there was always going to be a second performance. And the second performance wasn't going to be by Wings. The film Live and Let Die premiered in the U.S. in June 1973. But Paul previewed the song on his James Paul McCartney TV special which was filmed in February 73 and aired in April and May in the U.S. and U.K., respectively. It was around that time that Paul got the idea for what is sort of the way he does live and let die to this day, with a big pyro thing, you know, lots of explosions and everything going on. What he wanted to do for this was he was going to be lip syncing. The performance wasn't really a performance. It was lip sync. So they gave him a piano made out of balsa wood. And in the piano were a bunch of explosives. Don't know what kind of explosives. Obviously not enough to put him in danger, but enough to blow up the piano. And what you were going to see in the film was, you know, a sneaky looking guy in a trench coat up in the balcony pushing a plunger. <laughs> which is going to set off the explosion. The piano explodes, and nobody thought to warn the string players, who were all, you know, middle-aged to older classical players, also miming, but, you know, they were there with their violins and, you know, surrounding wings. The thing explodes, and Denny Sywell, you know, the wings guys knew about it, so Denny Sywell said, you know, what he did is he basically sort of went under the cymbals, but there were bits of the balsa wood piano flying all over the place. And he said, it's amazing that none of those guys had a heart attack for one thing, but nobody was, was injured by it. But that apparently went over well enough that, you know, to this day, Paul uses pyro in that song. And it's, it's always sort of a highlight of the show, but that's, that's where you can date it back to. Live and Let Die would be the first Bond theme song nominated for an Oscar, and it was also nominated for three Grammy Awards, including one for the film score. The only one of those awards it actually won, however, was for George Martin's arrangement. And, coincidentally, at that same ceremony, this recording also won a Grammy. Thanks for listening. Producing the Beatles is written, directed, edited, and produced by me, Jason Krupa. Thanks to Callum Ross for reading an excerpt from Ian Fleming's novel for us, and to Ross and Haley Park for setting up and recording that reading. Also thanks to Brian Parrish for sharing his memories with us, and big thanks to Alan Cozen for walking us through the making of this song. If you want to dig into more of the details of Paul's career in the early 70s, like we did today, Check out Alan's book with Adrian Sinclair, The McCartney Legacy, Volume 1. 
It's really deeply researched, and I think it's an essential addition to any Beatle fan's bookshelf. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at PT Beatles, and for more information, including show notes and references, be sure to visit the website, producingthebeatles.com. You can also find our email there if you have questions or comments. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to rate us on iTunes and let everyone know about us every way you can. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to us using your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.